All right, Joe, welcome to the Burnout Breakdown. Appreciate it, Hunter. Happy to be here. Uh, just right off the bat, there is no relation between me and Joe. We're not related, but we do have the same last name. Um, so, Joe, why don't you just give us uh, kind of a brief description about uh, what you do, uh, your background, and your background in Bitcoin in particular? Yeah, sounds good. So, currently, I'm an analyst at a company called Blockware Solutions. We're a private Bitcoin mining company based in the U.S. My background, though, I went to the University of Georgia, studied MIS and computer science, decided to go to grad school also at the University of Georgia, studied analytics. While I was in grad school, I worked for a family office called Mimesis Capital, which if you're deep into the Bitcoin space, you might be familiar with them. They invested in a lot of early stage Bitcoin companies back in the 2018-2019 bear market and worked there. After that, I did technology consulting at Ernst & Young in Atlanta, and now I work at Blockware. Uh, Blockware, basically, what we what we do, we're a vertically integrated Bitcoin mining company, so we self-mine ourselves, um, and we also help clients who basically want to deploy capital into the Bitcoin mining space, but don't know how to do that, don't know how to build the facilities, don't know how to procure the machines. We do all of that for you. And it's pretty hands-off experience for all of our clients. Sweet. Um, I didn't realize you had been in Bitcoin for that long. Um, that's cool. Uh, so what I want to do to start is give you kind of my description of Bitcoin. Uh, I've kind of gone down the rabbit hole recently, done a lot of research on it. Uh, and I find that it's helpful for kind of an outsider to try and describe it and then get corrected uh, rather than having a kind of a big Bitcoin insider just describe it themselves. So um, for my understanding, uh, Bitcoin... Uh, I'll, I'll use an analogy, and the analogy will fall apart uh, pretty quickly, but uh, it has helped me understand Bitcoin a little bit better. So uh, I like comparing it kind of to a Google Doc in that it is a um, public ledger. So every single transaction that has ever occurred on the Bitcoin network is on this ledger. And so it's a computer program that uh, kind of algorithmically uh, has this ledger and then it will add transactions to the ledger um, where the analogy will fall falls apart is kind of obvious is um you know for a google doc i as the editor have total control over the transactions or i can share that with you know the public at large and then any transaction could occur whether we'd have no idea if it was fraudulent or valid or not um so a bitcoin uh, kind of and we can talk about how it does that but it, it avoids that um, we we can be uh, assured that it's valid and that the transactions are all are all valid and that it's still public. Um, so, as a computer program, as a public ledger, um, is that a good description? Where would you clarify, add things, or you know? Yeah, no, I I think that is a good description. I mean, at the end of the day, Bitcoin is this public ledger that you know people can download Bitcoin Core, which is the software for Bitcoin. You anyone can run the Bitcoin node, this software enables you to basically download that Google Doc, download the ledger of all the transactions. So you can basically verify that, hey, coin A was sent to, or coins from person A was sent to person B. And you can do that from the entire history of, of, the, of the Bitcoin blockchain. So you don't have to trust, you know, a middleman, you don't have to trust a bank, you don't have to trust a government. Um, so yeah, I think that was like you know a pretty pretty solid anal analogy. Okay, so how how did Bitcoin come about? Yeah, so the origin story of Bitcoin is is pretty interesting. Um, most people may be familiar with it, maybe that maybe they aren't, but 
a uh, entity or a person by the pseudonym of Satoshi Nakamoto basically sent out a Bitcoin white paper and Bitcoin software on a cryptography mailing list back in 2008. And basically it was like this idea for a peer-to-peer decentralized digital money. And obviously back then a lot of people wrote it off um, and probably thought he was crazy, but it was the, the group that he sent it to were like known as cypherpunks where they were like kind of freedom minded individuals that were looking to create technology or tools using technology um, that would basically empower the individual. So like the first Bitcoin block was mined by Satoshi. And again, we don't know who this, who that is or who it was or who they were still to this day. And engraved in the first Bitcoin block is, is from a, a, a newspaper in the UK. And it says chancellor on brink of, of bailout for banks. And it was basically, you know, during the financial crisis when, you know, governments basically stepped in, created a bunch of money and bailed out banks that, you know, may have made poor financial decisions. And that's basically engraved in the Bitcoin blockchain forever. All blocks that, you know, have been created are, can be sourced back to that one block that was created back in 2009. And, uh, and yeah, that's kind of like the very, there's a lot more to the origin story of Bitcoin, but that's very high level. Yeah, no, that's good. Um, and and it is like any Bitcoiner will tell you that it's important that he Satoshi is anonymous. Um, that the, it wasn't a kind of a, an original, you know, influencer that was pumping the currency, but it kind of you know in in a way came up organically. That's always a big a big point that a lot of people will um, press. Yeah, going off of that, I always say that unlike pretty much every other cryptocurrency, Bitcoin there's no like pre mine. Like there's no money raised to start Bitcoin. All Bitcoin, I always say, were acquired at two prices. One price is like your fiat per Bitcoin. So like a dollar price that you see. Most people that you know probably just buy Bitcoin with dollars. The only other way that Bitcoin has ever been acquired is watts per Bitcoin. So this is mining, right? That's that's what we do at Blockware. And so even back then, Satoshi had to you know, perform or... or insert into the system this x many watts to, to mine that bitcoin and ever since then everyone that's been mining has been competing with each other putting basically burning watts to get more bitcoin and they're doing what's called proof of work it's showing that you've actually exerted some form of energy in order to acquire that bitcoin and so there's no you know insiders like eth there was there was like a pre-mine handing out to early people at pretty much every other coin that has ever existed there was a pre-mine or, or, you know, people invested in it, like fr- to the founder itself. And he took money. There, there was no pre-mine. No one like got at anything when this thing first started. Yeah. So why don't you go a little into what exactly is mining and explain that process a little bit? Yeah. So mining is, is definitely a complicated process. When, when you are mining Bitcoin, you're basically using specialized hardware called ASICs, which are, machines literally used to mine bitcoin like that's pretty much their only use like if you wanted to run windows on it it would be completely worthless it wouldn't it wouldn't work so it's basically performing this same algorithm over and over and over again trying to mine a block for the bitcoin blockchain which is basically just you performing complex calculations and entering this lottery over and over and over and over again like entering it billions and billions of times per second basically 
So you're entering this lottery X, you know, so many times per second. Eventually, on average, every 10 minutes, a miner around the world finds a new Bitcoin block. They distribute it to all the nodes. All the nodes say, oh, here's a new Bitcoin block. I'm going to, you know, add this to the blockchain. And with that Bitcoin block, the miner collects two things. One, they collect the block subsidy, which is new Bitcoin being mined, which is exponentially decreasing over time. That's how we have the supply cap of only 21 million Bitcoin. And the other thing is transaction fees. So miners also get all of the transaction fees that users pay to move Bitcoin from one wallet to another, from me to you, from me to an exchange. The, the miners get those transaction fees as well. And those um, algorithms like you're talking about, they are adjusted based on how many people are in the um, in the program or trying to find that Bitcoin. So the more that are in it, the, the harder it is. Exactly. So Bitcoin has this thing called the difficulty adjustment, which is a process where every two weeks, the difficulty to mine a new block adjusts up or down depending on how much hash rate or how many miners are attempting to mine Bitcoin. So like you said, if a lot more miners are trying to Bitcoin mine Bitcoin, it's going to get harder and harder for each miner individually to get that Bitcoin. And that's what allows it to be kind of scheduled. And we know, I think, what is the year, 2140, that all Bitcoin will have been mined by that year. Exactly. Okay, so um, in terms of mining, that's kind of been in the news recently because that seems to be what people and, and regulators and government are uh, – after right now. So, you know, a couple years ago, uh, China banned uh, cryptocurrencies. Um, maybe give us a little background on what China did there, um, what they, exactly they banned, and kind of what has been the ramifications of that. And then we'll, we'll move on to the New York bill that are, it hasn't passed yet, but, you know, passed the, uh, the legislator. Yeah, definitely. So China is a very interesting story. So this is China has banned Bitcoin and Bitcoin mining like repeatedly over the last five years. This past year, 2021, was when they actually got serious about enforcing it. And so last year, around early summer, Bitcoin's hash rate actually dropped probably about 50%. So that means half of the ASICs that were mining Bitcoin in 2021 literally completely turned off. Percentage-wise, this was the largest drop we ever saw in Bitcoin's hash rate. So blocks were coming in really slow for you know a short period of time. Difficulty was adjusting downward, like I said, because that hash rate is coming off the network. And so the, the algorithm basically makes it e easier for the remaining miners to keep mining it. And so as that was happening, basically it got really profitable to mine Bitcoin everywhere else, right? So the ban was somewhat successful. About 50% of the hash rate turned off over like a matter of a few months. And difficulty went down. Price went down a little bit, but ended up going back up. But when price started to go back up and difficulty like didn't necessarily recover quite nearly as fast as price, it was extremely profitable to mine in the U.S. And that's why we saw a lot of hash rate migrate from China to the U.S. So one thing I always like to say is like you can't necessarily ban Bitcoin mining because you're when you do that, you're just going to make it more profitable to mine Bitcoin elsewhere. And even... Even with that said, and even though China did ban Bitcoin mining, Cambridge puts out uh, Bitcoin mining geographic data where they 
basically try to determine like where are the where are these miners located based off what IP addresses they're using and a few other metrics. They they pretty much you know showed that hey post June of 2021, mining in China was was basically zero or they thought it was, and then very recently this year, which was an interesting development. They show that actually, no, we're, we're wrong. It's been about like 20% of the total network hash rate is still in China. So, you know, it's hard to tell whether that's like the CCP is just mining Bitcoin and selling it off, or it's just people doing it underground, low key, um, behind the meter per se, and uh, just, you know, avoiding, avoiding getting caught. Um, so it's interesting that even though they did try to ban it, there's still a large... A large amount of mining being done in China. For New York, though, um, that's an interesting development. It's, I always like saying it's kind of sad that we're grouping New York and China in the same sentence when it comes to what they're doing from like a political perspective and, and their regulations. But I would say, you know, for, for, we mine in the U.S., right? So we mine in, in Kentucky and Pennsylvania, and, and, now, and we're about to start mining in West Virginia as well. Miners over time, because of China, because of Kazakhstan, because of Russia, because of now New York, where they've done either they've either banned it or they've had harsh regulations that have made it very difficult to mine there. Miners are getting very selective about where they build f- these new f- facilities because, unlike you know Bitcoin itself, where it's extremely portable, I can send Bitcoin anywhere in the world immediately, and I don't have to like go through a bank. I don't have to go through uh, UPS. I don't have to go through Amazon. I don't have to go to through the postal system. I can send that, you know, over a communications channel, and it and it'll appear anywhere else in the world. For these facilities where you you're building out massive data centers that require an extremely large amount of electricity, you can't just like copy and paste that and move it somewhere else, right? That's something that's like a very capital intensive capital uh, upfront effort, and so you can't just you know move that elsewhere. So it's very important that when you build these large data centers, you build in a, in a jurisdiction that's going to be very friendly for not just the next year, but the next 10 years. Yeah, I think a lot of companies are realizing that, especially with the Russia sh- sanctions. A lot of companies are starting to realize that you know a lot of these political regimes that we thought were we could work with, uh, maybe we can't. You're even seeing that in China. A lot of companies are moving, especially with this zero COVID policy. They're they're moving their you know production lines and supply chains to you know Southeast Asia, things like that. So, uh, yeah. And so, in terms of um, of that kind of political regimes, and what what would it look like for the government to regulate uh, Bitcoin? Like you see that all over the news. The government's going to ban Bitcoin or regulate Bitcoin. Um, can the government do that? And if so, what would that look like? Yeah, I always like to say there's like no experts in Bitcoin, first of all, um, because people say like, yeah, we're going to regulate Bitcoin. But at the end of the day, it's like, what does that even mean? And and probably the people that are saying I want to regulate Bitcoin don't even really understand what they're saying. And like, you know, there's debate of, of what would be good regulation, what might be bad regulation and what's even you know possible regulation. Like I said, China banned Bitcoin mining. Now, 20 percent of, of the total hash rate for the Bitcoin network is still in China. So like you know, is, was that a successful regulation for China? I mean, who's to say? Um, I mean, like, I guess there's New York is probably, and mining is probably the most prominent example of like where next regulation might be and where bad regulation might be. Cause we're seeing that in New York, like 
mining is a very energy intensive process. And sometimes that energy might not be per se green energy or renewable energy. And people that, you know, think that we should be pushing towards renewables, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't, but even people that, I guess, want to curtail, like, the amount of energy that Bitcoin miners are using, they they may, they, they, they basically just want to, you know, lower the amount of energy that Bitcoin miners are using, whether it's coal, natural gas, or high, you know, any, any other sort of solar, wind, whatever. And so it's kind of like people are very, or regulators want to slow Bitcoin's energy usage. Um, and I think like that's probably like the next big hitting area where, where regulation might come. Yeah, if I'm remembering correctly, the New York law was, it actually focused on that very thing. It prevented uh, Bitcoin mining or it, it it has passed a legislator. The governor has not signed it into law yet, but it would ban uh, Bitcoin mining or cryptocurrency mining. I think in general, um, maybe just Bitcoin um, that uses was it fossil fuel energy. Um, so if you use non renewable energy, then uh, or renewable energy, then it wouldn't theoretically be banned. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think from what I've read, it's basically all existing Bitcoin miners would be fine in New York. It's for new developments of Bitcoin mining must be pretty much like 100% renewable based energy. Um, and if you're currently like coal based or non renewable based, you just can't expand your operations. And it would be like a two year window for to test this ban out. So, yeah, it's not like a complete ban on Bitcoin mining, but it would stop, it definitely would prevent, you know, ex- future Bitcoin miners from setting up shop there. Right. So, um, are there certain regulations you've talked about the kind of energy side of things and wanting to limit the amount of energy usage? Um, there's also regulation with this SEC or you know talk of regulation about how to you know classify cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin. There's a lot of talk about wanting to regulate in order to protect investors. There's a lot of speculation. Um, you know we just saw a collapse of one of uh, a, a stable coin, so to speak, and a lot of people lost a lot of money. So there's a lot of talk right now about regulating that space. What do you think that looks like? And are there certain regulations that you think should be put in place? Are there certain regulations that you think would actually help Bitcoin because it would clarify the kind of muddy waters a little bit? Um, And are there regulations that you think could really be detrimental to Bitcoin as uh, a a store value? Yeah, outside of mining, I definitely think more regulation is probably coming. Like you mentioned, there's a a crypto, crypto asset called Luna, that was very close to this uh, stable coin known as Terra. And that entire ecosystem basically completely imploded. It went from being worth about $40, $50 billion to being worth nothing. A lot of people lost a lot of money in that. Um, and a lot of people probably didn't quite understand what they were investing in, obviously. And so I think there's going to be a lot more regulation about what's maybe a security kind of like I was mentioning at the very beginning where it's like some of these cryptos may have like pre-mines or they may raise money to start a a crypto crypto asset or cryptocurrency whatever you want to call them I think a lot of the crypto industry as a whole is very scammy very shady the entire web3 slash blockchain industry is just a little a little a little shady and I think that there's a lot of 
you know, reasons for regulators to crack down on people, you know, raising a hundred million dollars saying they're going to, they're going to create this crypto that's going to deliver X product and never delivering it. Or if they're delivering it, maybe the people that invested the hundred million dollars into it lost 99 million of that. And so I think that that's kind of like been a history of these cycles. Like Bitcoin goes through these massive bull runs, like 2013, it went through a huge bull run. 2017, it went through a huge bull run. 2021, it did. After all these bull runs, we had these, you know, large 80% plus corrections. And during each of these cycles, you know, there's these new altcoins that kind of pop up that people invest a lot of money in. They, they give it to the founding team or they maybe they think it's kind of like equity in a startup. And they kind of see that, hey, I invested in this company, and then you know all of the all of those coins from 2013, maybe like one of them still exists or is traded today. All of the coins from 2017 have severely out- underperformed Bitcoin. All the coins from 2021 are currently imploding or or, or or crashing. So I think like a lot of the assets outside of Bitcoin, where investors are kind of getting fleeced and losing a lot of money especially retail investors that don't quite understand what they're getting into. I think there's going to be a lot of regulation around that. And I kind of think that's probably a good for the whole ecosystem, honestly, or at least Bitcoin. Do you think there's um, regulation that you would be in favor of? So um, maybe I've seen, you know, classifying Bitcoin, not as a, um, as a security where, you know, you, it's like a stock, you know, it's classified in the same category as um, stocks, but as a commodity where you don't, um, you know, you don't tax the possession or the ownership of it or the sell of it, um, just like oil. So, you know, are there regulations like that that you've been in favor of or are you just kind of in a wait and see and um, you'll be able to identify bad regulations when you see it, but uh, you're going to just in a kind of a wait and see process? Yeah, that's that's definitely one of the, more interesting regulations the when you mine bitcoin do you pay taxes on it as you mine it or do you pay taxes on it when you sell the bitcoin because like you said like normal commodities like if you are planting corn you don't pay taxes on the corn right when you harvest it you pay taxes on the corn when you sell it so there's actually a a, uh this came out like a couple months ago like a a a court battle right now where someone is suing, I think it's just the IRS about paying taxes on mining and staking. Um, And so it sounds like there, that will actually probably go through where, where, where Bitcoin, I don't know if they're, you know, this commodities futures, whatever organization, I don't know if they're going to say like, this is a commodity or whatever, but with that court battle going through, it sounds like you won't be taxed on your Bitcoin unless you sell it from a mining perspective. So I think that would be like great regulation. Yeah, because it's basically being taxed twice. You you mine and then you get taxed on when you mine it. And if you sell it, you get taxed again. So um, I mean, mm-hmm. look, less taxes, the better in my opinion. So I'd be down <laughs> with something like that. Um, in terms of Bitcoin and its value proposition, uh, I want to talk a little bit about why does why do you think Bitcoin has value? Like, do you think Bitcoin is just something that you trade and you hope it goes up and you hope other people buy it at a higher price, or do you think Bitcoin has real value and and why do you think it has has real value? And then uh, after that, I want to talk about just some critiques, um, questions I have, and and you know disagreements um, that I want you to address. But where does the value of Bitcoin come? Yeah, no, I, this is a great question. I love talking about it because I think 
it's very intuitive for smart people to see Bitcoin as this Ponzi or, or this bubble at first. And I think it's intuitive because monetary value, like money, is dependent on other humans. So like if you're trapped on an island alone, monetary goods, dollars, gold, Bitcoin, silver, seashells, ray stones, all of these technologies and tools that have been used as money, they're not going to serve any use for you if you're just trapped on an island by yourself. But like if you're trapped on an island, a fishing pole is going to be valued to you. It's going to be valuable whether you're alone or you're not. Like like most goods, you know, a fishing pole isn't dependent on other humans to be useful. It's a tool that you can that will help you obtain food whether you're alone or you're with billions of other people. And so I think like just because Bitcoin's value or monetary value is dependent on other humans, it doesn't mean it's this Ponzi or this bubble based on a collective hallucination. So I think it's kind of important to understand like why so many people are like kind of converging on Bitcoin as another form of money. And I think they're doing this because of Bitcoin's superior monetary properties. So I think this Bitcoin is this monetary shelling point that, that individuals are converging on because of its scarcity, its divisibility, its portability, its durability. All of these unique properties, when you compare them to other forms of money like gold, fiat, silver, raystones, seashells, salt, anything that's been used as money, if you, if you compare those properties, objectively, Bitcoin is far superior than any other monetary technology we've ever discovered. So I think like the underlying reason behind Bitcoin's value accrual is kind of this game theory among like individuals acting in their own self-interest. So I think like this this cult or this, you know, these group of people that appear to maybe have this collective hallucination kind of or have formed as a result of Bitcoin's superior monetary properties. Yeah, so explain kind of how Bitcoin uh, has each of those qualities. It doesn't have to be like a long explanation, but just kind of quickly, how does Bitcoin um, just demonstrate and have those you know, monetary qualities that you say it gives it value? Yeah, so scarcity is one of the most important ones, I would say. There's only going to be 21 million Bitcoin, and you know that without having to trust a middleman, right? For the dollar, you 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 know, you you trust the government, you trust the Federal Reserve, same with every other fiat currency that exists. Gold is probably the other most scarce good that we have, but we're always going to be able to mine more of it new technology comes out we could mine in the ocean we could mine asteroids it's still a you know an asset that we could always eventually find more of bitcoin is interesting because anyone around the world can download the bitcoin core software you can run bitcoin core on any laptop it doesn't even have to be a expensive laptop you can run it on a raspberry pi which is like 50 bucks i think you can run the software and immediately you can be verifying the entire Bitcoin blockchain from its origin and not have to trust a single other person. And you can basically say, my node says there's only going to be 21 million Bitcoin. That's the code I'm running. Everyone else is kind of agreeing to run this code because we all know it's better money and we want we want scarce money because that's, you know, that's how that's how we get this number go up technology. It's how 
the price is, is supposedly going up. And so anyone can, 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 you know, verify that it's, it's scarce and you don't have to trust anyone to do that. So scarcity is important. There's only going to be 21 million Bitcoin. The other one is divisibility. There's a hundred million Satoshis in one Bitcoin. So Bitcoin can be extremely, extremely divisible. And on the Lightning Network, each Satoshi can be divided into a thousand other um, subparts. And the Lightning Network is, for people that don't know, is basically a second layer of Bitcoin where you can transact Bitcoin from one person to another by paying very low fees and also not having to wait for block confirmations. A normal base layer Bitcoin transaction could take you know, 10 minutes, an hour, depending on how many confirmations you want, how how much confidence you want that the transaction has actually settled. With Lightning Network, you can send, you know, a thousand bucks from A to B very quickly with very little fees. So that kind of gets into to portability. Bitcoin is very portable. You can send it to anyone in the world. You can verify with your with your computer that you received it. You can verify that you received it without having to trust anybody. Gold's very different, right? If someone hands you a gold coin, it's hard to tell if it's actually gold. Like the only the only way that you can trustlessly really tell that you just received gold is to melt it down, make sure it's actual gold, use some advanced technology to really say like, oh, this is actually gold. And that's very expensive to do, especially if you're, you know, just if it's just you know a thousand bucks. So verifiability is a, is, a, is another one, and uh, and yeah, I mean like there's there's other properties, but those are that's like the main gist of of Bitcoin's monetary properties. Good. So um, now to some you know pushback event against uh, Bitcoin. Um, so if Bitcoin's value is just going to increase over time, right? That would be the the thesis um, due to its monetary properties and as adoption increases. Um, why would anyone do anything but just hold on to Bitcoin? Um, if it's just going to go up, why Why would you ever give it to someone else? Um, and, you know, as a store of value, that may be fine, um, but at the end of the day, do you see it being just a store of value or do you see it being a, a currency, something that we you know trade with, so to speak? Yeah, I think in the short term, the best way to think about Bitcoin, and by short term, I mean like maybe next five to 10 years, Bitcoin is going to be this thing known as savings technology, where if you have capital that you don't know what to do with for the next minimum four years, and you want to preserve that capital and most likely grow it because Bitcoin adoption likely will grow over time since it's still very small then you're going to basically store wealth in Bitcoin that you don't need for the next four years and use it as this number go up savings technology. Now, very long term, maybe 20 years, I think it's very possible that Bitcoin could be more of like a medium of exchange type money, more of what people might think of as the US dollar today. Um, And we can get into specifically about like deflation versus inflation and whether economies could possibly work. On, on a different type of system. Um, but yeah, I, th- I think the best way to think about Bitcoin right now is it's a long-term savings technology. Gotcha. So um, you're, you would think, um, or your belief is that that exchange or that use of it as currency, um, it, it'll be later, it, you know, and like you said, 20 years. And right now it, it is 
just a store of value, um, but can, uh, as adoption grows and as time goes on, will kind of transition into an exchange or a monetary, like like we think of as a U.S. dollar. Yep, exactly. Okay. Unless we have um, pro- like major problems, I mean, government currencies historically fail, right? So if if we go through a very high inflationary period, somewhat like we're in today, and faith is lost in in large institutions like banks, large institutions like governments, then it's you know it's possible that that people adoption happens much faster. Um, but who knows? Yeah, and uh, I mean, I've seen some stuff talking about how you know your need for a sound value, a store value, uh, is going to determine how quickly you adopt Bitcoin. So the countries that really don't have a reliable central bank, uh, you know, according to you know the game theory, will probably be the ones to adopt it first because they have they have to out of necessity. Whereas you know the United States, because we're the reserve currency of the world, uh, the dollar is. Uh, we can have we have a little more trust or a lot more trust in our currency than you know the Central African Republic that you know inflation or, or Argentina or Venezuela you know these countries that have rather corrupt uh, governments corrupt central banks and have you know the the value of their currency has collapsed multiple times in a generation um, so that kind of goes along with what you're saying right there um, in terms of inflation versus a deflationary economy. Um, so inflation, right, the currency, uh, the value of the currency, the U.S. dollar, decreases over time. Uh, so it's worth less in a year than it is today. Uh, in 10 years, it'll be worth less, uh, even even less. Um, and because of that, uh, you're, and that happens because you're, the money supply is constantly expanding. Um, you know, the, the Fed's target rate of 2%, you know, whatever. So it's um, expanding, and that encourages economic growth. Um, because, you know, the idea is if, you have a deflationary, which is essentially what Bitcoin would be, where the uh, currency is increasing over time, meaning you can buy more and more with uh, the same one Bitcoin. You can buy more in 10 years with it than you can today, which is the opposite of the inflationary economy that, you know, and, and really money how we think of it. Um, why would you spend it? Why would yeah. you, you know, can the economy grow? Why would people invest? Why would people do anything other than sit on their Bitcoin and wait for it to continue to go up? Yeah, no, this is like a very interesting topic that obviously if you studied economics, you know, at a graduate level or you have a PhD in economics or you work at the Federal Reserve, you think inflationary currencies or inflationary monetary systems are like required for economic growth. And I, you know, kind of have this idea of Maybe they're wrong, um, <laughs> uh, but I'll I can ex- try to explain my my way of thinking there. I think like in today's system, like we have a debt based monetary system, right? So the money in your bank account is not like they don't actually have the cash like sitting in the bank, right? It's someone's mortgage. It's a it's a bond from a company. It's commercial paper that Coca Cola holds. Like the bank, you know, owes you a million dollars, and then they have a million dollars worth of assets on the other side of things, someone's mortgage, right? And so in a debt-based economy where pretty much all money is debt, deflation is really bad or it's because because everyone's in debt to each other. And so if, if enough people start defaulting, like we saw in 2008, like we kind of saw at, in 2020, when everyone starts defaulting, the money in the system starts disappearing because there is no money because everyone just, it's all fake money. We all just created it by loaning it into existence, and so when you have deflation in a debt-based system, the whole house of cards could implode really fast 
because one person's default leads to another person's default. And little before you know it, assets are just completely collapsing. No one can pay, make interest payments on their debt. The debt's all worthless, which means other people's assets are collapsing because your debt is, is someone else's asset. And, and at the end of the day, you have to have inflation in a dollar-based system to keep the system working properly. So I think in a Bitcoin world, it kind of flips the entire idea of what even is money on its head. Um, and, and more of like recently, what is money, right? M- money historically has been like an actual good or, or a tool like gold, right? Only until like 1971 when we broke loose with the gold standard was money this purely debt-based instrument. So we're kind of living in like a very, over the last 50 years, a very like unique period where money is very different from what it has been for, for thousands and thousands of years. So I think Bitcoin might be going kind of back to what money originally was and what is better money. Um, just because, yeah, I'll, I'll, I guess there's so many different ways I could take this, but I'll, I'll go for the deflation may not be bad argument to stay on, on that track. Basically, I think that what's possible with Bitcoin is there won't be a debt-based monetary system. There will basically only be, if people want to raise money to pursue projects like an entrepreneur or or an existing company wants money to, to do a project that is going to give them a return on their capital, they will just raise money in the form of equity and not raise any debt. Because like you said, if you raise debt in a deflationary currency, it gets harder and harder to pay that back because the Bitcoin you borrow today is going to be worth a lot more 10 years from now. Like if you borrowed Bitcoin in 2013 for $1,000, now you have to pay that one Bitcoin back. You better have had a really good return on your on your, on your your capital because now you owe $30,000 instead of $1,000. Um, I think one thing that's interesting is a lot of people like always say, hey, how would this work when the value of your Bitcoin keeps going up over time? But it's... It's kind of interesting because I think Bitcoin is kind of like a GDP index. It's like a productivity index. So if you would hold Bitcoin, it's kind of like the same as like holding an index fund of the entire global economy, right? And so if Bitcoin actually is going up in value, if it is a deflationary currency where the price of Bitcoin relative to everything else, consumer goods, consumer services is going up, that means people are investing and people and products and services are getting cheaper. Like, that's why the price of Bitcoin would be going up. If the price of Bitcoin is going down and and people are, you know, spending it, then that's kind of the system that we have today where your future cash flows might be more and more Bitcoin over time. Maybe, like, there's a natural disaster and the price of water or food skyrockets in an area. That would be inflation. Price of Bitcoin would go down relative to food, water, and capital. Businesses would start up to, to provide people food and water. But... If the price of Bitcoin is going up, then that means someone is still trying to capture profits in that area, and they're actually doing it more efficiently than we were doing it a year ago. Yeah, and it, it, I mean, it goes kind of back to the whole Austrian school of economics, right, where um, it's, it's the price cycles of capitalism. And, you know, Bitcoin wouldn't go up forever. Now, it would um, large-scale, zoomed out, go up um, according to, you know, the game theory. But along the way, you'd have a lot of ups and downs. Um, day to day, it would go up and down like we see now, right? So when, you know, like you were saying, when water is scarce, 
then the the price of water, because the demand is still going to be there and the supply has gone down, it's going to go way up. So, you know, Bitcoin, the value of Bitcoin in buying water went down. Um, so, uh, whereas like Keynesians would, you know, they would just inject liquidity into the market, um, which, again, because Bitcoin is a, a set amount, you, you couldn't do. Um, do you have any fear about, um, it's easy to lose Bitcoin, right? Like if you type one letter wrong when you're sending um, it to someone else or a different wallet, uh, then it's it's gone. And there's no mediating institution. You can't call the bank and say, hey, I didn't mean to do that. It's, it's gone and it's gone forever. So as adoption happens, the supply of Bitcoin is just going to continue to go down, which in the store value sense is good. But as a, the ability to use it as a currency is not, right? You, you have to have, you know, you can't, if there's one Mona Lisa in the world, you, you can't use it as a medium of exchange because it's a great store of value, but you can't use it because there's only one. Do you have that fear that be, as adoption grows and as more Bitcoin is lost because well, people are fallible, that it kind of limits its ability, its upside to be a medium of exchange? I would say no to that because at the end of the day, Bitcoin can be infinitely divisible. Like I said, like if, if there was only one Bitcoin in the world because somehow everyone else lost all their Bitcoin, there's still 100 million Satoshis in that one Bitcoin. On the Lightning Network, which is a second layer, there's a thousand parts of one Satoshi. And this could all be changed. Like Again, this is code. Like If we need to create more integers behind those, num- like behind those numbers, say one Satoshi needs 100 billion subunits for one Satoshi, we can do that. I mean, like, it's just a matter of people agreeing that like, Hey, like we need to add some more zeros at the end of this because there's not enough of it. It's not, it's not subdividable enough as far as like people losing their Bitcoin. I think one like technology is getting a lot better for this and, and will continue to get a lot better. Like back, back when people first discovered Bitcoin, like you hear the horror stories of, I had, you know, a thousand BTC and I've been looking through a landfill for the last three years because now it's worth like, you know, $20 million or $30 million, whatever it is. Um, and they never found it. But that's just because like back then, like it would be, there weren't hardware wallets. There weren't seeds where you can write down your 12 words and back them up. You, can't, you, you were basically like holding a file on your computer. And that was like the pretty much only way, you know a user-friendly way you could do it just because the technology wasn't built out yet. But now we have seeds where you can literally write down 12 words. That's your Bitcoin. You can be very redundant with that. You can back it up on metal steel plates. You can have them in different locations throughout the world. You can even have multiple keys that control one Bitcoin, right? So you can have a something called a multi-sig wallet, multi-signature, meaning you can have three keys, each one, they would have their own 12 words, which is like your password to your Bitcoin. And it can be a two of three multi-sig. So you, you can have these three keys. And if you lose one of the keys, you still have all of your Bitcoin. So it's kind of very redundant in the sense that you can write down all of those words, store them in different locations. Even if you mess up and you lose one of them, you're still fine. If you notice you lost one of them, you can create another wallet where you have three, three keys again, and you can send it to that wallet. So I think the technology behind losing Bitcoin is going to get is getting much better and already and will continue to get a lot better over time. And we'll just make it harder for people to lose it. <laughs> yeah. And easier to protect um, too, right? If right. if someone comes to your house and you have a a multi-signature wallet, 
you know, they can't knock on your door and hold a gun to you and say, Hey, like, give me your money. I'm like, I, even I can't control it. Like I have to get in the car. I can travel to a f- different place and then we could possibly do it. But still that's, that's risky. I could, there's a lot more execution risk for trying to steal someone's Bitcoin if they don't even have all the keys in one spot. Right. Um, I want to go back to what you were talking about with adding integers um, and, you know, making it more divisible. How is that different than printing more money? So I would say, think about it this way, right? Right now, there are, um, we're thinking about this, let's go very simple example. We order a pizza, right? Get a pizza. We order it from Domino's. We invite a bunch of people over. And someone says, hey, we can feed more people, right? Let's just cut this instead of into eight slices. Let's cut into 16 slices. Now we have 16 slices of pizza. But there's still one pizza, right? So it's the same thing with Bitcoin. Like, you can be 21 million Bitcoin. You can keep subdividing it as much as you want. You're not really redistributing coins. If I own... 1 million of the 21 million Bitcoin, I have one twenty-one millionth of all Bitcoin. If you subdivide it further, where there's, you know, more, like more sats within one Bitcoin, say there's a billion sats instead of a hundred million sats in one Bitcoin, it's still, I still have one twenty-one of all Bitcoin that ever exists. So you're basically just making it easier to transact and easier to send if there's just not enough integers to send around. Do you think they would come up with a new name if they increase the integers? So SATS is um, for, like, for those that don't know, SATS is, like, the smallest unit of Bitcoin right now, like, apart from the Lightning Network. So you can buy, you know, one SAT, and it's worth, you know, right now it's worth, like, less than a cent. Yeah. Um, it's kind of the smallest what we can get. So do you think if they, they would add more integers, do you think they would change that name? Probably. I mean, there's still a debate, like, within the community of what even, if it's called a SAT, some people want to call it a bit. I mean, it's all kind of, you know, it's just what the community kind of agrees upon and the community doesn't necessarily agree upon everything. It's very hard to change Bitcoin. That's kind of a kind of a feature. But yeah, I mean, like if, if enough people demanded like, hey, like we need to divide it further, they would probably divide it further and it might be called something else. So what, how would that process take place? So um, if you can, you know, change something like that, that seems like a, you know, it's not changing the number of Bitcoin, but it is a changing, you know, pretty you know, big part of Bitcoin. Um, how, if it could be changed like that, doesn't that make it uh, up to have some risk of the number being changed? Yeah, no, that's a great question. There's a good book called the block size war, which is kind of similar topic, but different where it was a battle, uh, from 2015 to 2017, where people were trying to change Bitcoin, change the core protocol rules of Bitcoin. They wanted to increase the Bitcoin block size, which would have allowed more people to transact over base layer Bitcoin, like the layer one, not like the Lightning Network, which would be a layer two technology. And it would, require, it would allow more transactions to be added per block on the Bitcoin network. And it ended up not really working. The, the hard fork to change Bitcoin's core rules ended up not being successful. And the people that run Bitcoin nodes, the users of Bitcoin, people that hold Bitcoin and run the software, ended up soft forking Bitcoin, which means... They were able to change Bitcoin, but in a way that was backwards compatible with all other Bitcoin core people that ran ran the Bitcoin code. So it didn't change Bitcoin to where old users were now they didn't they didn't create a whole nother network. They did in a backward compatible 
compatible manner to where they just kind of improve the network, basically change the rules within the existing rules um, to, to, to upgrade Bitcoin in a way that didn't kick people out or fork off the network into two separate um, networks. So yeah, I mean, for as far as adding more uh, units to Bitcoin, it likely, in my opinion, it likely wouldn't even happen on the base layer of Bitcoin. It would, because that's very difficult to change. It would likely happen on like second layer networks like the Lightning Network. And that would just be um, done by the Lightning, Lightning developers. That makes sense. Um, and then I'll kind of wrap up here. I know I'm reaching the limit, but um, what happens when the Bitcoin reward uh, becomes, you know, irrelevant? So, you know, it's supposed to end in 2140, but before that, because it's getting exponentially decreasing in like when a miner mines the reward they get, um, I mean, it's going to be pretty much in irrelevant much sooner than 2140, especially when you think about what is that, you know, Nine, over 19 million Bitcoin have already been, it's like 90% of Bitcoin has already been mined. So is it, do you think fees, or I assume you think so, why do you think um, fees are enough incentive for miners and not Bitcoin? Yeah, I mean, so for reference, I think by 2040, like 99.6% of all Bitcoin will be mined. Um, so most Bitcoin, pretty much all Bitcoin will be in existence by then. So yeah, it's it's something that's talked about a lot in the community. Um I think it's, I think it's important to really understand like what what mining is and like how how mining is important. I think people confuse necessarily like mining with security of the network. In reality, it's more like right now mining is about distributing coins. In my opinion, it's not really about securing like your transactions. But it's just because Bitcoin is so valuable, the new Bitcoin. There's a huge incentive to mine right now to get these these new coins. But longer term, when the block subsidy runs out and transaction fees are the only thing that miners are are receiving for their for their proof of work to mine these blocks, I think that people that transact over the Bitcoin network are basically looking for settlement finality. So like if someone has basically the attack is this if you, if you have fifty one percent of the total network hash rate, you can censor transactions. You can be adding empty blocks to the blockchain forever. So like if you were a state and you hated Bitcoin, like China or something, and you wanted to attack it, what you would do is you would obtain a ton of hash power um, or relative to what's existing at the time and what's economically mining Bitcoin. And basically you would just start mining empty blocks, right? And this would make it to where no one can transact on the first layer of Bitcoin. So that would be a, a very clear attack. You can also do like smaller attacks, like you can censor specific people. Uh, if you want, like if China had 51% of the hash rate and they want, wanted no one in the U.S. or te- specific te- or terrorists or whatever, anyone to not be transacting on the Bitcoin network, they could just censor their transactions and they would never be able to make a transaction. So you're really, you're really like trying to get uh, settlement finality when, when you're transacting over Bitcoin. And that's what miners do. Miners add blocks to the network. They build each block on top of each other. So the more blocks, the deeper into, the more confirmations you have, the more blocks on top of your transaction, the more confident you can be that like, hey, this, this transaction was legit, this settled, and people are going to trust that I, whoever I sent this Bitcoin to or whoever received the Bitcoin uh, has the Bitcoin. And so going back to the like one of the attacks where a, a state is censoring every transaction, the Bitcoin network is completely unusable, 
you can't really do it now. Like right now, if you try to do that, you'd have to have billions and billions of dollars worth of worth of hardware. You'd have to have massive amount of energy all in one spot. It'd be very difficult to do it right now. Like right now, maybe like the U.S. or China could maybe do it, and it's not like they can do it like tomorrow. Like they could. This would take years to do, even at current prices. So it'd be very very difficult. First of all, and even if they did do that, um, there's an argument to say that like, hey once you have this much hash power and you've built out all of these energy resources, you might as well just start mining Bitcoin with it because like the price is going to keep going up. And like, why would you, if you're, you're about to be one of the richest people in the world because you have this much hash rate, why would you attack the network when you have all of this capital that you deployed? Cause if you, you know, wreck, if you, if you attack Bitcoin and like do it successfully, which I think would be almost impossible, um, you, you would destroy all of the capital you just spent years and years building. And it's not like, you can say you say you did the attack for a year you turned all your machines off you got rid of them people could still start up bitcoin like it's not like it's going to go away so you might have to do the attack forever to to get people to stop using it but if you start to do the attack say like someone launches this attack in 2040 and transaction fees are really low so maybe it doesn't take per se much money to to do this attack what's going to happen is people trying to transact bitcoin on the network will just raise their fees, right? So like if there's little demand to, to transact on, on base layer Bitcoin and you're not your your transactions are not settling, you're just gonna, you know, instead of sending a, a you know, if Bitcoin's really valuable by them, which I think it would be, and it, you know, it is right now, but it, I think it could be magnitudes higher. If you're trying to send a billion dollars of Bitcoin over the network and you've been paying one cent for the past one year, now you might be willing to pay $100,000 to get your, your Bitcoin settled. And if, you know, many, many people are trying to do this all around the world, now there's going to be huge incentive to mine all of a sudden. More more ASICs are, more honest ASICs are going to get deployed. If whoever the bad actor is, is going to, is going to keep mining empty blocks as the attack, you know, they're mining empty blocks. They're not getting any money for this. At this point, you know, all of the honest miners are going to be like, hey, there's a lot, we can make billions of dollars if we start mining all of these these blocks so we're going to start mining it and even the the attacker might be like wow we're, we're just burning money right now mining these empty blocks we should probably start mining these so we can make money um so at the end of the day i think like the incentives work in the system and i think if there is an attack bitcoin is very like anti-fragile in the sense that if you push it down or you or you try to make it worth less or you try to attack it it only is going to get stronger gotcha well um I think that's it for me. Is there anything that you want to leave the people with? No, I think it's, I enjoyed being on the show. Enjoyed talking about Bitcoin. I think if anyone is listening and, you know, has thought about buying Bitcoin or owns Bitcoin, I think the best way to think about it is, like I said, it's long-term savings technology. So don't, don't buy it. Don't hold it. Don't save it to get rich quick, to make a lot of money really fast. Realize that it could draw down 80%. It historically has done that. It probably will do that again at some point. But in the long run, I think it's the most superior monetary technology we've ever discovered. So I think it's going to keep keep performing well over the long run. And where can people find more about Bitcoin if they want to go down the rabbit hole? Um, I think there's great books out there, like uh, The Bitcoin Standard by Saifedean Amus is a fantastic book. Um, if you haven't read it, definitely check it out. Follow me on Twitter, though. Like My DMs are open. I'm Joe Burnett on Twitter. My handle is at III Capital. Um, feel free to reach out to me. Awesome. Well, thanks for, thanks for joining. Yeah. Thanks, Hunter. Enjoyed it.